Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And welcome to the second episode of Sister Month. It's Sister Month. It's Sister Month. If anyone wants to quickly compose a theme song for Sister Month, um, let me know and I'll play it in the next episode. So last week we met the Papin sisters, the gruesome maids of 1930s France who brutally, and I cannot emphasize that word enough, brutally murdered their mistresses. Um, We're talking eyeballs being removed by human fingers type murders. And then they became kind of like symbols of a class revolution, even though they themselves didn't really use that rhetoric. Um, And then they were separated in prison. And the one who was the more dominant one kind of completely deteriorated and died young. And the other one lived until the, this this millennium, 2000, the 2000s. Um, today we're going to change tactics and we're going to talk not about two sisters, but about four sisters, hashtag never enough sisters, who have become national heroes instead of sort of national symbols of gruesome violence like the Papa sisters. That being said, it took decades for these sisters to get the recognition they deserved. So don't think it's easy because it's not. Thank you to the listener who suggested this case and whose name I cannot find, despite frantically searching through my email, my Instagram messages. Listener, if you remember who you are, please send me a note and I'll thank you officially in the next episode. Sorry that this keeps happening, guys. Um, Just like a little interesting um, perspective giving fact. So, Right around the time when these today's sisters, the Mirabal sisters, right around the time when they were all being born is when the Papin sisters were committing their crimes in France. So that's where we are. Of course, we're an ocean apart. We were in France last week. We're going to be in the Dominican Republic this week. We're going to spend most of our time in the 1950s, early 60s. We're going to get a mini crash course in Dominican Republic history that I hope I do justice Um, with, but I'm only scratching the surface here. And so without further ado, let's go. Let's meet our main characters. Let's start with the dictator. His name was Rafael Trujillo. He joined the army of the Dominican Republic as a young man, and he trained with the U.S. Marines. Within 10 years, he was a general. And three years later, in 1930, he was the man in charge. He seized power, all of it, in a military revolt against the president. For the next 30 years, he ruled the Dominican Republic with an iron fist. He sent his secret police riding around the country in black Volkswagen Beetles, spying on citizens and slaughtering his opponents. He forced churches to post signs that read, God in heaven, Trujillo on earth. And then eventually, he switched the order so that God was an afterthought. Trujillo on earth, God in heaven. 
He had his soldiers slaughter 20,000 Haitians, men, women, and children, because he saw them as culturally and racially inferior. He liked to be driven around the city secretly so that he could watch his people. He was always watching. He would have people in other countries killed if they opposed him. He couldn't stand to be opposed. He owned 500 pairs of shoes, 2,000 suits and uniforms, and 10,000 neckties. He and his family controlled over 60% of their country's economy, but he presented himself as the savior of the poor and exploited. He loved drama and spectacle. He baptized thousands of children to make sure their parents were in his debt. There were rumors that he had demonic powers. And he loved women. His 30-year dictatorship depended on the conspicuous control of women, one academic wrote. It wasn't just that he was married three times and had numerous mistresses. It was far darker than that. As another academic wrote, Trujillo's power was based as much on the consumption of women through sexual conquest as it was on the domination of enemies of the state. He would send his men to search the countryside for beautiful girls, young girls, schoolgirls, and his rapacious appetite was so well-known that families would hide their daughters when he came through town. While some women wanted to be noticed by him— He was, after all, the epitome of power, and many people longed for power. Others feared and loathed his attention. Families knew that if Trujillo noticed their daughters, they would have to decide between turning their girls over to him and refusing him. And refusing him might be a death sentence. As a third academic wrote, there was always so much to say about the dictator, every Dominican family had a victim of Trujillo in its closet. Now that we've met the dictator, let's meet the sisters. The four Mirabal sisters grew up in a house without a single picture of Trujillo. Most people in the Dominican Republic had a picture of the dictator in their household. It was, shall we say, encouraged, but not the Mirabal girls. Their names were Patria, Minerva, Maria Teresa, and Dede. They were born in the 1920s and 30s, and they grew up in a world ruled by the dictator. Their parents were fairly wealthy farmers who owned land and ran a general store and could afford to send their girls to a nearby Catholic boarding school, which was, at the time, the best in the country. Their mother was strict about keeping her place clean. She would never allow the girls to get up without making their bed. Their father would carry his daughters on his shoulders as he walked through their fields. All four of the girls were creative. They liked gardening, pencil drawing, painting. And the Mirabals were a family that loved their country. Patria, the oldest, was born on Dominican Independence Day, which was why her parents gave her her name. It meant homeland. So the four sisters all went to the same school, and then their lives diverged. Patria left boarding school at 17 to get married. Her husband was a farmer, and she took pride in homemaking and caring for her garden. They had four children. But don't be too distracted by this picture of domestic bliss, because Patria would soon become politically radical. Her home, which she was so fond of, would become a place where people made bombs. After all, 
Who would suspect a sweet little wife and mother of four? Next was Dede. She also dropped out of boarding school before graduation. At first, she returned home to help her dad work, and then she got married herself. She had three kids, all sons. She was the least political of the sisters, at least for now. After Dede came Minerva, the extroverted sister, the charismatic one. At boarding school, Minerva started learning more about the dictator whose photo was never allowed in her home. She started rubbing elbows with her peers, who were distinctly anti-Trujillo. She graduated in 1946 and returned home to help out with the family business, but what she really wanted to do, perhaps inspired by the things she'd learned in school, was study law. Her parents wouldn't let her, though. Some versions of her story say that her parents didn't think a woman should be a lawyer, but other versions say that her parents had a more serious reason for saying no to law school. They were afraid. They were afraid for their daughter's safety. They could see how political she was getting, and they worried that by becoming a lawyer, she would be putting a target on her back. And the youngest of the sisters was Maria Teresa. She was obsessed with her cool older sister Minerva. Maria Teresa wore her hair in one or two long braids, which she'd later become famous for. As the youngest sister, she was a little bit pampered, as is a younger sister's right, but she had plenty of brains and she put them to good use. After graduating from the same boarding school as her sisters, she went on to study math and then surveying, which is the science of making accurate measurements of Earth's surfaces, at the University of Santo Domingo. She left the school without graduating, though, and she married a man who, like her, hated their country's dictator. A year later, they had a daughter. Maria Teresa would only get to be a mother for a single year. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Our first sponsor is Athena Club. Guys, it's pretty much summer weather where I am now in New York, and this means it's time to shave those legs, shave those legs, but only if you want to, of course, only if you want to. If you're into sometimes shaving your legs, like when you're wearing your that fabulous vintage um, bathing suit that you found on Poshmark, you need a razor that makes shaving uncomplicated and that is gentle on your precious skin and that leaves it moisturized and bum-free. So I'm here to tell you about the Athena Club razor, which I'm using in the color coral, no big deal, and I'm obsessed with. It has thousands of five-star reviews. It's designed with built-in skin guards and an innovative handle that'll help you prevent razor burn while being gentle on the curves and weird bumpy parts of your legs. It's only $9, comes in your choice of color with an extra blade head and a magnetic hook for easy shower storage. They also have great shaving cream that my husband has been stealing. So show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code BROADS. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code BROADS for 20% off. Our second sponsor is Molecule Mattress. All right, guys, I... How do I say this? Don't always, since becoming a mom, it's harder and harder to sleep because you never, you just never know when you're going to be woken in the night by a small creature. 
which is totally fine. I love my small creature, but I'm extra grateful these days for my Molecule mattress. Now, Molecule mattress is beloved of elite athletes like Russell Wilson, etc., my close friend. I'm no elite athlete myself. I'll do some stretching at night if I'm really good about it. I will sometimes do a bar class online, but like that's about it. But I do lug my baby around and he's very heavy. Regardless, I'm no elite athlete, but I too need a place to sleep that will mean I wake up without a sore back, without weird feeling in my neck, and that will just like help me sleep all night long. Molecule is not your typical mattress in a box. Their sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It has all this technology to keep you cool and to help the mattress like adjust with you as you sleep in whatever weird positions you sleep in. It's antimicrobial, which feels really good in these trying times we're in. If you want to try it out too, I got you a great discount and you can try it for, uh, yeah, 100 nights. I was like, am I reading that wrong? 100 nights risk-free and then you can return it if it's not for you. So go to onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code CRIMINAL. Again, save 20% with promo code CRIMINAL at onmolecule.com. In 1949, Minerva, the third Mirabal sister, was 23, single, and very pretty. This was a really bad thing. By then, Trujillo had been in power for almost two decades. He'd come to power when Minerva was only three, and he showed no signs of stopping any of it, any of the killings, any of the obnoxious tendency of naming things after himself, and any of his insatiable appetite for young women. Trujillo liked to have fancy parties, and when a girl caught his eye, he might invite her to one of these parties. This was an invitation in name only. There was no option to respectfully decline. A party was never just a party when Trujillo was involved. It was a hunting ground. And so when the Mirabal family got an invitation to one of these parties, it didn't really matter that they lived in a house that had no portraits of the dictator in it. They had to go. And so they got dressed up, and they went. The entire Mirabal family was nervous that night. They knew the dictator had his eyes on Minerva, and they'd heard rumors that Trujillo had a habit of spiking his victims' drinks. What would they do if he offered a drink to their sister? Tell her not to drink it and risk jail? Slap it out of her hands and risk prison? The party unspooled around them, all pomp and circumstance, just as Trujillo liked it. And before long, the inevitable happened. The dictator asked Minerva to dance. As they danced, they talked. Or at least, the dictator talked. He made his feelings known towards her. We don't know exactly what he said, but he made himself clear. He was propositioning her. Minerva was expected to smile and lower her eyelashes and agree to do whatever he wanted to do. After all, he held her life in his hands. He held her family's lives in his hands. But Minerva said, no. There are lots of rumors about how exactly Minerva Mirabal denied Rafael Trujillo. The most dramatic stories say that she slapped him across the face. But her family denies this. 
Other accounts say that she told him that her religious beliefs wouldn't let her, you know, get into bed with him. The third version of the story is that she told him that she didn't agree with him politically and that he responded, what if I send my followers to get you? However it happened, Minerva's rejection was obvious. There was no room for Trujillo to console himself by thinking, oh, maybe she was just being coy. And the dictator couldn't believe what he was hearing. Women never said no to him. As one of his biographers writes, Trujillo felt annoyed at this peasant woman who had refused to face the possibility of something many posh women yearned to get in those years— a time of intimacy with Trujillo, the man whom everyone in the country feared. After the disastrous dance, the entire Mirabal family tried to leave the party as fast as possible. This was a mistake, though, because nobody was supposed to leave a Trujillo party before Trujillo did. His officers surrounded the family. They threw the father in jail. Not long after that, the dictator ominously summoned both Minerva and her mother to the capital city and kept them hostage in a hotel room for two months, telling Minerva that if she became his mistress, then he'd let her father go free. She refused. The time in jail broke her father. As one academic writes, he emerged a broken man and never regained his physical or mental health, dying shortly after his release. Life would never be the same for the Mirabals now that Trujillo was angry with them. They were now being watched really, really closely. Friends had to be careful when they talked to Minerva. One minute they'd be exchanging pleasantries about the weather. The next, they might be whisked away in a black Volkswagen Beetle to be interviewed and maybe even tortured. What did she say to you? What does she know? Trujillo's agents heard and saw everything. At one party, Minerva wouldn't raise her glass to the dictator. That got reported. When Minerva insulted a brand of car, since it was the same brand that the dictator drove, that got reported. Now, Minerva probably knew that she was being spied on. How could she not know? And still, she refused to make the most minor of concessions, like toasting to a dictator who wasn't even in the room. After three years of this, three years of walking on razored eggshells, Minerva's family finally let her go to law school. But surprise, surprise, Trujillo was waiting for her there. He wouldn't let her register for her second year of law school before jumping through a bunch of hoops, one of which was a meeting with him. When she graduated, despite him, summa cum laude, and one of the first female lawyers in the country— he wouldn't give her her law license. She couldn't practice. Instead, to make money, Minerva had to take up sewing. Back in law school, Minerva had met a man named Manolo, who thought and acted a lot like her. They fell in love. They married. Like her, he had difficulty finding a job in law, and so he had to farm with his father to make ends meet. She sewed, he farmed, they talked politics. The two of them saw eye to eye. They saw that their beloved country was being crushed under the thumb of a dangerous, petty man, and that they had to do something about it. The Dominican Republic wasn't the only Caribbean country with a dictator in those days. 
There was a dictator in Cuba, too, but his reign was about to end. On the very last day of 1958, Fidel Castro and his rebels overthrew the Cuban dictator and replaced his government. 500 miles away in the Dominican Republic, people like the Mirabal sisters watched in awe. If Fidel could do it, they thought, why couldn't they? As one of Trujillo's biographers wrote, educated and well-positioned youths, shamed and chagrined by their parents' nauseating surrender to Trujillo, had quietly begun to rebel, even as in Cuba, Fidel Castro came out of the mountains to give them an example. Less than a week after a ragtag Castro marched victoriously into Havana, Minerva and Maria Teresa were at lunch with several of their friends, and Minerva said, If in Cuba it has been possible to bring down the dictatorship, then in our country, with so many anti-Trujillo youth, we can do the same. The passion and awareness raised that day eventually coalesced into an official movement. The young people called themselves the 14th of June movement, named after a failed attempt on June 14th of 1959 to overthrow the dictator. Minerva was one of the movement's leaders, and two of her sisters, Patria and Maria Teresa, soon joined her, along with their husbands. There were hundreds of members across the country, many of them the well-educated children of Trujillo's own supporters. For safety, the members of the movement operated in cells so that no one knew everybody else's names in case they were arrested and tortured for information. At Patria's cozy home that she was so proud of, she and her children built explosives, and Minerva and Maria Teresa traveled around the country with their husbands, making sure the movement's cells were organized and looking for locations where they could organize arms drops, which is when you have an ally drop weapons from the sky. The girls used the code name Las Mariposas, the butterflies. Later, the head of Trujillo's secret police would explain that everyone knew Minerva was the brains behind the operation. Minerva Mirabal was the one who had taken the seed of sedition to her family, he said. She was sick with radical leftism. It didn't take long for this movement to start planning their ultimate goal, the assassination of the dictator. They knew he was going to show up at a cattle fair on January 21st, 1960, and they made plans to blow him up there. But Trujillo had eyes and ears everywhere. The day before the assassination could be carried out, his secret police descended on the movement. Hundreds of them were arrested, including Maria Teresa, Minerva, and their husbands. Some of the male members of the movement were tortured, and some even died in prison. Meanwhile, the dictator's PR team got to work, telling papers that they had intercepted nothing more than a, quote, simple communist plot, hardly worth paying attention to. The problem was that these mass arrests weren't a great look for the dictator. He'd just arrested a bunch of young people, many of them wealthy, many of them women. As his biographer wrote, the list of those arrested read like a Dominican who's who. The fact that he was now torturing them was outrageous, and people started to openly express that sentiment. The Catholic Church had long been in Trujillo's back pocket. Trujillo on earth, God in heaven, remember? But now they denounced him in a letter that priests read from every pulpit all across the country. It was a scathing letter. It never mentioned the dictator by name, but it was obvious who it was talking about. In it, the church declared that human rights come before those of the state. 
the letter read, in part, The basis and foundation of all positive law is the inviolable dignity of the human person. Each human being boasts, even before his birth, of a heritage of prior and higher laws than those of any state. They are intangible laws whose free exercise no human power can impede. This really irritated the dictator. He wasn't used to seeing the tides turn against him so publicly. To his minions, the dictator snarled that he had only two problems left in the entire world, the Catholic Church and the Mirabal sisters. Yes, the tide was turning against the dictator. He could feel it. He was making all sorts of mistakes. He tried to assassinate the president of Venezuela. No big deal, right? The man was always criticizing him. But the assassination failed, and now everyone was mad at him. Apparently, you weren't allowed to just go around trying to kill other world leaders whenever you wanted. Uh, Maybe someone should have told him that earlier? In retaliation for the attempt on his life, the Venezuelan president asked the Organization of American States to place economic sanctions on the Dominican Republic. The man who tried to put his name in front of gods was now looking around at the global stage and seeing enemies everywhere. Powerful enemies. So, in an attempt to make himself look good he decided that he would uh, free all the female political prisoners. Look how nice he was being to women. He was practically a feminist. This meant that Minerva and Maria Teresa were freed, though their husbands were still locked up. They'd been in and out of prison for the past six months, arrested, freed, arrested again, placed in solitary confinement. At one point, they were sentenced to 30 years each, and then that was reduced to three years, And now they were free, sort of. They were under house arrest at their mother's, and if they wanted to go anywhere, they had to file a petition. It was kind of strange how much the dictator fretted over these sisters. At this point in his career, he had enemies as threatening and formidable as the United States of America. But he couldn't stop thinking about those damn girls, especially that Minerva one, the one who refused him. They were a thorn in his side. Their presence gnawed away at him. First they wouldn't sleep with him, and then they had tried to assassinate him? The nerve! And so, even though his international reputation was as fragile as an eggshell, he decided that enough was enough. The Mirabal sisters were going to have to die. Of course, he couldn't openly kill them. They were women. They were well-known. They were well-liked. But that was okay. Trujillo had a little trick up his sleeves for moments just like this. He'd done it before when he needed to make other enemies disappear. He'd make everything look like a traffic accident. Everyone told the Mirabal sisters, be careful, be careful, you're in danger, people said. Please, please watch your backs. The Mirabal sisters sort of ignored them. 
They weren't idiots. They knew they were dealing with a very dangerous adversary. But they also knew that Trujillo didn't assassinate women. He just didn't. And now the eyes of the entire world were on Trujillo's every move. It would be madness for him to come at them at a time like this. But then, the husbands of Minerva and Maria Teresa were transferred to a different prison, a farther away prison. In order to visit them, the Mirabal sisters would have to drive down a highway that was known as a place where accidents often happened. This seemed ominous to their friends and family. Please don't visit them, people begged. It's a trap. But the girls visited with fresh clothes and food. They could all sew very well, and they even launched a little clothing shop to help support themselves and their husbands, since their property had been mostly confiscated after their arrests. On November 25th, 1960, Minerva, Maria Teresa, and Patria asked one of Trujillo's men for permission to visit their husbands. Well, Patria's husband was in a different prison, but she wanted to go on this trip with her sisters. The man said yes, and then he promptly reported the news to a group of assassins. Meanwhile, the sisters couldn't find anyone who would agree to drive them there. People were terrified. There were too many rumors flying around about how the dictator had the sisters in his sights. But finally, the sisters found a driver. His name was Rufino de la Cruz. He was a friend of the family, and he was a very brave man. The four of them made the treacherous drive to the prison with no incident. They didn't know that they were being followed. Five male assassins had followed them to the prison, and there, the assassins wrote down their license plate number. Then the assassins drove back down the road a couple of miles and waited. Around 5 p.m., the Mirabal sisters and Rufino de la Cruz started for home. It was getting dark. It was starting to rain. At one point, the highway curved, and around that curve, the dictator's men were waiting for them blocking the road, armed. They stopped the car and forced the sisters into their car, saying that they were under orders to take them somewhere. In the tussle, another car drove up. It was a government car with some social security workers inside it. Miraculously, Patria managed to break free, and she ran towards the workers, screaming, Tell the Mirabal family that the thugs have taken us. They may kill us. One of the dictator's men came up just then, grabbed her, warned the social security workers not to say a thing, and threw Patria back into the car with her sisters. The assassins ordered Rufino de la Cruz to drive after them, and the ominous parade moved up the curving mountain roads until they arrived at one of Trujillo's many properties, which had a thick sugarcane grove on it. There, the assassins forced the sisters out of the car and tied their hands behind their backs. Then they decided that they would each take one of the victims into a different part of the grove. They didn't want the sisters to know what was happening to each other. Although, surely the sisters already knew. Surely this was a fate that they'd discussed before. Surely in the drive to the sugarcane grove, they'd looked at each other with terror and understanding in their eyes. Now, the men picked up sticks and the sisters were separated.
A few days later, newspapers ran a nothing little story with the headline, Three Sisters Die When a Jeep Plunges Into a Chasm. It wasn't until the second paragraph that the sisters' names were given. Patria, Minerva, Maria Teresa. This was the dictator's official version of events, and he even forced the sister's mother to sign a statement agreeing that her daughters had died in a car accident. But the Mirabal family members, who had the terrible luck of having to identify Patria, Minerva, and Maria Teresa, could tell that their deaths were no accident. Maria Teresa's skull was shattered. There were handprints on Minerva's neck. Their jeep had been found down a gully, just like the newspapers said, but it had been rolled there by the assassins after the women and their driver had been strangled and beaten to death. In the Mirabal sisters' last moments, they had screamed out at each other, and Maria Teresa had yelled to her sisters that her killer was trying to rape her. You can kill me, but you're not going to rape me, she cried. The assassin who was in charge of the whole thing called out to the man, Cut it out. Orders are to kill her. Dede, the only sister who survived, looked at her littlest sister lying there in the morgue. Her hair was still in one long braid, the way she usually wore it. Dede carefully cut the braid off and took it home with her. At the funeral, Dede didn't talk. She couldn't. But at the cemetery, she suddenly couldn't stop screaming. Murderers, she shouted. They murdered them. Someone had to pull her away from her sister's graves. Back in one of his many estates, the dictator and his 10,000 neckties probably thought that he had gotten away with it. He'd finally vanquished the Mirabal sisters. Now he could relax. In fact, two months later, he took himself on a nice little stroll of the area where they had died, and he said pompously, This is where the Mirabal women died, a horrible thing that foolish people blame the government for. Such good women, and so defenseless. But with these assassinations, the dictator had gone too far. He had murdered thousands and thousands of people, including children and entire families, but the slaughter of the three Mirabal sisters was what destroyed him. Trujillo had always used masculinity as a tool, a way to bolster his power. He portrayed himself as a super male, how he dressed, how he ruled, how many women he slept with. But now, with this assassination of three intelligent, bold young women, each of them mothers— the Dominican Republic recoiled. This wasn't the sort of masculinity they wanted to support. The cowardly killing of three beautiful women in such a manner had greater effect on Dominicans than most of Trujillo's other crimes, wrote one of his biographers. It did something to their machismo. They could never forgive Trujillo for this crime. More than Trujillo's fight with the church or the United States or the fact that he was being isolated by the world as a political leper— the Mirabal's murder tempered the resolution of the conspirators plotting his end. Six months later, Trujillo would be the one ambushed in his car. Seven men with machine guns opened fire as he drove down the highway. The dictator crawled from his car and tried to get away, but the assassins fired again. And before long, 
the ruler of the Dominican Republic was lying dead on the road. It took a while for the Dominican Republic to officially acknowledge the Mirabal sisters as heroes. Trujillo was dead, but his influence and his protégés were still in power for quite some time. But today, no one can deny that the sisters are heroes. They're recognized as national martyrs. Their faces are on the 200 peso bill. They've been the subject of books, poems, and plays. Most famously, the novel In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. There is a Mirabal Sisters Foundation and a Mirabal Sisters Museum, both created by their surviving sister, Dede, who always said that the reason she was kept alive was to preserve her sister's memory. After their death, Dede raised all six of their children. She lived in the house where they were all born until the day she died. The Mirabal Sisters' influence is now felt across the world. They are in textbooks, they are the subjects of dissertations. November 25th, the day of their death, is now International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And in the Dominican Republic, there stands a statue that Trujillo built to honor himself. It's an obelisk, 137 feet tall, horribly phallic, and it points toward heaven, the place where Trujillo felt that he'd be in charge. But that statue is now covered in murals, honoring the Mirabal sisters. It's like they've been given a second life, an immortal one. Minerva's daughter grew up to be a successful professor and politician, and she always remembered something that her mother used to say. People would tell Minerva, stop what you're doing, it's too dangerous, you're going to get killed. And Minerva would always respond, if they kill me, I shall reach my arms out of the grave and I shall be stronger. And she was right. So that's the story of the Mirabal sisters. Aren't they incredible, inspiring, and isn't their end just oh, such a horrific one? I actually didn't find like the some of the details about the way they were killed until the very end of researching this episode, and then I found them tucked away in a book somewhere. And, you know, I had already, in researching and writing this, been struck by just how scary what happened to them was. Um, But then just hearing the little details of how, um, you know, exactly they were separated at the end. And the one that breaks my heart the most is how they called out for each other while they were being separated just to like, it's like sister radar. You know, they like wanted to know where each other was at and what was happening to each other even at the end. Those are just the details that give me chills. 
All right, we're halfway through Sister Month, but we have a long way to go, guys. A lot more sisters to cover. (laughs) And if any of you out there are sisters, as I am, and have any anecdotes about your sister that you'd like to share with me. Now, these don't have to be anecdotes about horror or crime. You know, these can be cute. These can be funny. These can be spooky. Do you have any weird, like, sister intuition anecdotes? Send me an email, criminalbroads at gmail.com, and I will read some of them in the next episode. And until then, just another reminder, rating and reviewing the podcast is the way to my heart. I'm trying to like plug it a little bit harder in recent episodes since I've forgotten to for a while. And we're going to be back here next week with a story of, ooh, how do I say this in a, in a um, classy manner? Um, body parts being cut off. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry in advance. I'm sorry in advance. Okay. I'll see you here next week. Thanks for being the best listeners ever and have a good one. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.